Hi, I'm Tammy Rodman. I'm Reynolds Chapman. And I'm Keith Daniel. Welcome to Who Is My Neighbor, a podcast about what it looks like to love your neighbor. Every city has a story, and our wonderful city of Durham, North Carolina has woven our stories together. This podcast is an invitation to join us as we journey through Durham's history of pain and hope and discover what God is speaking to us in this moment. Come with us as we listen to the voices of the Samaritans. In this first season, we are asking a question to respond to our present moment. Who is my neighbor amid a pandemic and a history of racial injustice? Today, we're welcoming Ms. Virginia Williams to the show. Ms. Williams is a civil rights leader. She is one of the seven of the 1957 Royal Ice Cream Sit-In. She is a speaker on our pilgrimage and she is a faithful member of St. Joseph's AME Church, which is one of the oldest black churches in Durham and was known as the place that gave out the marching orders. Ms. Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tammy. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can hear you well. Okay. And Yes, and we would like to start by having you share your story about participating in the sit-in. Tell us about what led you to it um, and what followed. Well, what led me to it is watching my father and other men in the community slip off to an AM NAACP meeting. I think about they were meet about every three months and to get dressed up and go off somewhere on a Sunday afternoon and not tell us where he was going was a little crazy to me. So finally, after nobody else of my siblings would ask, I asked my mama, where is he going all dressed up and not taking us? I had to ask the question twice because the first time I don't remember what she said, but she didn't tell me where he was going. When I asked it again, I guess she realized this is not going to end, so she told me, he's going to that NAACP meeting. Well, we didn't have television then. Most people didn't, but we watched almost all of the news, and I knew what the NAACP was. I knew what the Ku Klux Klan was. <laughs> so I had sense enough, and my schoolmates had sense enough to, not go to school and brag about my dad went to the NACP meeting. It was a secret and we kept it, but it just didn't seem right that grown men are afraid to openly come out and say they're going to an NACP meeting. So I began to understand later. I still didn't understand why they were afraid to. Made a whole lot of sense once I understood it. But I just made up my mind, I think, in probably about the 10th grade that when I finished high school, because I was not going to be able to go to college, I was going to go somewhere and get me a job. And if I had the opportunity to go to any of those NACP meetings or any of those other meetings, I was not going to slip in there quietly. I made up my mind I was going and make it claim that I'm here to work. Well, I graduated from Gumberry High in 1955, came to Durham in 1956, and I was living at the YWCA where one of the other participants, Mary Clyburn, was already living there. And she said, Jen, come on, move to the wild child. It's a good place to live. You meet a lot of people. There's a lot of stuff going on. Sure enough, I did move to the YWCA. And it was somebody was meeting every night. Somebody was having a class every night. Uh, there was a sock hop, I think, once a month downstairs where the little kids could come Everybody was wearing socks at that time. Anyhow, these were young people. So were we at that time. And I think once a month, 
I would go down and supervise the sock hop. It was just a busy place to go. And uh it was about a third of us who were working. And the two-thirds was for the students. Basically, the YWCA was supposed to be a place for young women to live until they could get settled and find another place to live. But I kept telling them I didn't have nowhere to go. I wasn't looking for nowhere to go. So I stayed there longer than anybody else. And when we had the reunion, I got the award for the longest residence there at Harry Tubman Branch YWCA. And one Sunday afternoon, Mary Clyburn, Vivian Jones, and I were going out of the building and a group of Nice-looking, colored men. We were colored at that time. We'd been a plan of things. But they were coming in the meeting, and one of them asked us to come to the meeting. And I said, what kind of meeting is it? And he said, uh, the name of the organization is ACT. He said, it's a civil rights meeting, and that was where I wanted to be. Immediately, without talking to the other two, I just say, yes, we will come. That's how it ended up with three women in there. Before then, there were no women, because this also was a very secret meeting. The same meeting, like my father was going to that, they weren't telling us where they were going. Neither were these men. It was a mouth-to-mouth thing, and nobody was supposed to go out and say, we're meeting at Sunshine, so it wasn't publicized. It was just a group. Make sure you can trust them that they're not going to tell anybody else. They did not want the public to know what they were planning to do because they were sure they would have been discouraged. No, don't go. We're doing fine. Don't rock the boat. So we went in and sat down. David Stiff was the president. He was also the owner of, at that time, Southeastern Business College. His family still runs uh, a business. I think I don't know if it's Kitty or somebody. The 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 there's something about a school that's still going on, and so he was the president, and he got right down to business. He. He didn't uh, waste any time. He made it clear why they were there. Now, it was our first time there, but they had already organized. So after uh, making it clear why they were there and a few other things, the next meeting was going to be the fourth Sunday in June, and that was going to be on June the 23rd. And we were invited back to that meeting, of course. And there was only going to be two things on the agenda. One, where are we going to stage the sit-in? And who was going? Those were the only two things on the agenda. And true to his word, <laughs> When the meeting opened that fourth Sunday in June, the first question was, where are we going to stage the sit-in? A lot of names came up different. We could go in and have gone anywhere because it everywhere was segregated. All of the restaurants and the dining areas were segregated. So finally somebody said, well, what about the Royal Ice Cream? In North Durham, it sits right in the heart of the colored community. Why don't we go there? And everybody agreed, Royal Ice Cream, we will go. The second question was, who will go? And the three of us women raised our hand, and then two, uh, four other men raised theirs. Now, we know where we're going. We know who is going. And that was the end of the meeting because the sitting was going to happen right immediately after it. 
I don't remember who drove us or how we got down there, but anyway, that is where seven of us went. We knew we were going to have to go in the back door and get out of the car and go up the steps and stand there and wait until the waiter waited on all of the white customers. And he would then come back, take our order, put it in a bag or a cup or whatever we were getting. We had to go back downstairs, get in the car, and leave. You did not sit in the car on the premises and eat the ice cream we just bought. So we knew all that. We also knew there was a push door that would swing both ways. So the idea was whoever gets to that first, get to the door first, push it so hard with force that all of the rest of the six of us would be able to clear it. And we were going to take the choice seats, which was the booth. Everybody loved the booth because you sit by the window. You could watch the traffic going by. You could watch the children going different places. So we went in there and sat down. The waiter turned around and he thought, I guess he thought he was seeing some ghosts. He got a look at us, and then he turned his head. Then he stopped, and he got a good look. I guess he said, this is really happening. He went to the manager's office, which was right beside where they go to get the food, the uh, kitchen. The manager came out, and he got a look at us. He didn't say anything to us. They went back in his office. So the waiter came back to us. We were sitting in the booth, and he started at the door. We couldn't hear what the people, first people were saying. We couldn't hear what he was saying. But we knew that nobody was moving, and I think the idea was as long as nobody moved, nobody got up to leave, we were going to be there. So he worked his way on down from this booth. They wouldn't leave. They were actually, everybody asking for ice cream. He worked it on down further until I know I was sitting in the last uh, in the uh, last booth, so apparently I was one of the last ones to get in. And he asked us if we would please leave, and all of us asked for some ice cream. And he said, "Well, the manager does not want to serve your ice cream. I would like some ice cream, please." That was everybody's what everybody was saying. So he went back and talked to the manager. The manager didn't come out, but I told you we were sitting where we could see traffic coming and going, and we saw four police cruisers coming, two in each car, and the streets were relatively safe at that time, and yet you had uh, two officers in each car, and that was regular. That was not just because they were coming to see what they could do with us. So the police officers came, and they got a good look at us on the way back to the manager's office. And then one of them came out, and he decided, while the rest of them looked on, he would try his hand, and he was asking very nice if they would leave. And the ones down there were not leaving. They were still asking the police officer ice cream. I, I would like some ice cream, please. But and we didn't plan to to for it to work out that way, but that's just the way it was. He worked his way on down till he got to me, and of course I was asking for ice cream and other ice. The first the first time he said, "Well, the manager does not want to serve you, but I would like some ice cream, please." So finally, he had to get a little more firmer. He said, "The manager is not going to serve you any ice cream." We were still asking for ice cream, so he went back, and the idea was we'll have to take him down to the magistrate's office. I think that's where it was at that time. We got in the cars, in their cars, went down to the manager's office, magistrate's office. And it was only one man on duty, and he had this click, click typewriter, you know, one thing at a time. And so you can imagine it was going to take a little while for
for him to do all of the paperwork. In the meantime, all of the rest of us were standing around waiting. And then there was a notice of colored man standing at, he had gotten in and he was standing at one mumbling to himself. And I asked somebody later. I didn't ask them then because we were, uh, we were just standing there. But later I asked, I think I asked Jesse Gray, who is that man? He said, that's Mr. Lewis Austin, the owner of the Carolina Times. Well, it turned out that when we got arrested, they weren't doing breaking news down like they do now. It was special bulletins. So the special bulletin had come out all over town. People were watching, and a lot of them had TVs. Most of them had TVs. The color community was watching the news, and I, I was told by a lady who was a part of, well, she was watching the news, too, and she said when that special bulletin came on, Everybody's phone was ringing. Did you see the news? Do you know? Yeah. Some, some colored folks went down there to the Royal Ice Cream Place and refused to leave and got put in jail. Well, backwards and forward, they, could, they couldn't find out who we were because they said, well, somebody said, well, was some out-of-town uh, troublemakers came in. And their idea was, we're doing fine. We don't need that now. But the idea finally came that, well, we gotta get them some, some attorneys. In the meantime, David Stith had invited us to come. His business, his office was upstairs on Pettigrew Street in one of those buildings. He invited us to come up there and he had a candy machine, a cooking machine, and a drink machine. And he unlocked all three doors and swung the doors wide open. He said, help yourself. That was our Sunday dinner while we were waiting for them to get legal advice for us. And finally, somebody made contact with, uh, I don't know who, who they talked to. I think Jesse Gray. And, uh, they agreed that they had contacted attorney William A. Marsh, Jr., and he agreed to meet us downtown that Monday morning, but he was going to try to have it put off because attorney Conrad Pearson was in New York at some meeting. The judge refused to put it off. He says, I'm calling this case today. And he told uh, Billy Marsh, is what we always called him, you better have him in, in court this morning because I'm calling that case today. Okay, I had gone to work, and uh, the rest of them had gone and were doing whatever they were doing. But they came to my job at Duke hospital and told me that I was going to have to leave. Well, the article was on the front page of the paper, so I knew my supervisor had seen the article. I went in the office and told her something had happened, and I was going to have to leave. I didn't tell her what had happened. She already knew. She'd read the paper. It was on her desk. So she said, all right, Virginia, now, if you can't come back to me, if you can't make it back tomorrow, call us and let us know. I guess you're sick because you're going to be in jail. At any rate, we rushed down to the courthouse. Got down there. Attorney William A. Marsh Jr. was there. And he was, of course, going to defend us. And he did. The judge would not put it off, so he called it. He found us guilty of trespassing. Attorney Marsh immediately appealed, and so we were able to go out then. Uh, we didn't know when we were going to have to go here. Immediately appealed to Superior Court, so we knew it would be a while then, so we was quiet about it, business as usual. And uh, he would stay in touch with us. Then we went to 
Superior Court. It seemed like it took a year, but I guess it didn't. But with an all-white jury, we knew we were going to be convicted. And we were. They upheld the the lower court's decision. They call it Recorder's Court, I think, at that time. And the they upheld the Recorder's Court decision. We were found guilty. Attorney Marsh immediately asked for, uh, he immediately had that put off. Now we're setting up the case for the state Supreme Court, state, some kind of court in Raleigh. By that time, we there was, I think, four of them on the case, Attorney William A. Marsh, Jr., Attorney W.G. Pearson, uh, Attorney Conrad Pearson and M. Hugh Thompson, and McKissick. There were five of them. And in the meantime, we went to Superior Court and were found guilty. So now we're heading to Raleigh. And we went there, and that judge upheld the decision of Recorder's Court plus Superior Court and found us guilty. The brief was sent to Washington to the United States Supreme Court, but I understand that they sent the answer back that our rights was not in, uh, our rights had not been violated. So that means we were still guilty of trespassing. And the NAAC, the local chapter of the NACP, paid the tab for all of us because the police, I mean, the lawyers were basically working pro bono. But the fines of this court and that court and the other court, all of that added up. And there's been two or three figures uh, thrown around. I still don't know exactly how much it was, but the, the local chapter of the NACP paid it all. And it was relatively quiet then because now what you need to remember is this was in June. You didn't have any college students here because they were all going home. And I think some of the Durham Business College students were going home. So there was not enough people here to even think about picketing. So it was quiet until 1960, February 1, when the A&T 4 faced their city in. February, all of the students moved back. You had Bennett right across from A&T, all of the others, then Winston-Salem, St. Aug, all of them along with us threw up picket, picket lines all across this town, that town, the other town, states and state. It was like a domino effect. When one got out there and started, everybody else moved in. That is why A&T was in, and I guess there are a few of them who still argue that they did, they staged the first city in. But in our hearts, and history has now recorded that the first city in was staged at the Royal Ice Cream Parlor in the heart of Durham, North Carolina, in the black community. And the marker is up at that what used to be the Royal Ice Cream Place. Of course, they kept selling it, I think, almost, uh, I believe his name was Bobby, I can't remember. He sold it to somebody else, and somebody else sold it to somebody else, and finally it ended up being uh, owned by a black man, Mr. Charles Dunnigan, and the best fried chicken. The fried chicken was just as good, if not better, than the ice cream when it was ice cream. So that's what happened to that. But uh I think basically that's all, except I want to go back and say, why Mr. Lewis Austin, the owner of the Carolina Times, came down there. The main reason he came, he said, was because he wanted to be the one 
to bail us out. So instead of going to that community meeting where they had and made the decision, we're going to give them some legal advice. He came because he thought we were down there and he wasn't sure how we were going to get out. So he came, number one, to bail us out and number two, to get the story. And he was the one who kept the story alive. But it was quiet until A&T did theirs in, uh, on February 1, 1960. Uh, I might have skipped other things, but I, I can take some questions now. And hope uh, I still have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just my, you know, I, at a loss for words, Miss Williams. I, I, um, I know we're on a podcast, so words you can't be lost for, but <laughs> we started this morning with just a time of devotion and silence and, or at least I, I did, um, my day just reflecting on the gift of this day and, and knowing that I was going to hear you, you know, narrate again for us this story. And it is so vital for us to know these stories. I'm so thankful. I just want to express our gratitude. For you taking the time and, you know, and continue to to testify, as it were, because there's, you know, it's kind of like when you watch a movie a few times, you, there's scenes that you don't see or you, you when you watch it a second time. And I, yeah. I can and there's so many questions that come to mind for me. I'm not even sure where to begin, but I guess I'll begin with a fairly one that feels more proximate to me because I have two children. They're 20 and 22. Um, my daughter has been to a couple of protests already and each time she goes, um, you know, besides the fact that it's a pandemic and other, other harmful, um, aspects, can you, would you say more about, um, how old you were again? If I can't be so bold to ask that question, uh, of your age at the time and I was 20. You were 20. Okay. So again, that, that makes it feel real proximate to me to, to, to now have a, a daughter that same age and to try to think of what was that? What was a, I know some secrecy going on, but was it secret to your parents as well? Did they like see the newspaper and like, Oh my God, I thought she was at work. <laughs> you know? Can you say more about what it was like in your media household? Um, yeah, I understand. Well, it was a while before I, maybe about, um, let me see. It was, Probably because it was in June, and I had gone just gone home to Father's for Father's Day. This was the fourth Sunday in June. I'd just gone home to Father's Day, so it was probably about a couple of months before I went back home. But the news had already gotten there and spread it out, and uh, somebody was saying that we got up there and went to jail. They didn't even know what it was for. But I came from a small town where if you went to jail, it was for something bad. It mm-hmm. was never something, yeah. and it was usually the man. Mm-hmm. I had plenty of uh, brothers that uh, jail was like going to Sunday school for one of them. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's the reason why my mother never really was able to grasp the importance of it. She was looking at Lord, that's the baby girl, and now she's going up there and going to jail. It wasn't, they, she, they weren't seeing why we went, just that we went. That's mm-hmm. all they knew. But my daddy, when I did go home, and he looked at me, and he said, you did right to go in there and sit down and refuse to get up. Because he knew I was doing what he wished he could have done. Mm. But at the same time, they had to be silent, quiet about it. All of us lived on somebody else's farm. If the man find the landlord find out that you were going to this meeting, something that's supposed to help colored folks, and decided to put you off the farm, where were you going? That's always that cotton corn and peanuts. Uh, about five miles up the road, there was tobacco. We didn't do that, but we were all on somebody else's farm. So. That's why they kept quiet about it. And then, and now I admire them for the way they did it. But I couldn't understand why on Sundays, uh, some Sundays they would get dressed up and go somewhere and leave us and not say anything. That's what made no sense at all to me. 
And that is what instilled in my heart that once I left home and was established in a job and I heard about one of those meetings, I was going shouting that I was a part of it. Did the same thing they did. Went up there and got into this quiet mouth-to-mouth meeting where they weren't telling anybody that they were going to be doing it, David Smith and uh, Levi Johnson and those. They were just quietly meeting until they got it organized because it was basically organized by the time we found out about it. Well, Ms. Williams, I want to ask the question, and you shared this before, and I always get excited when I hear you share this part um, because it just speaks to your... um, feistiness and that uh, tenacity uh, that you have when the police officer. So could you share what the police officer said to you? This was after we were at the magistrate's office being booked. And uh, one of the police said, and like I said, they had one man typing that click, 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 click. So it took a few minutes for it to happen. Nobody was saying nothing. And that's when he walked over, and I don't know whether I looked easily intimidated or I might have, I don't know what sent him over to just say to me, if you were my daughter, I would take you across my lap and spank you. And without even thinking about it, because I hadn't expected him to say nothing to me, and without even thinking, I said, if I were your daughter, I wouldn't be down here for this. And, of course, all of the other police were trying so hard not to laugh because he was already embarrassed. I had already cut him down. And because he didn't think when he said that, if I had been his daughter, I wouldn't have been down there. I would have been sitting in the royal ice cream place eating ice cream. And so they were trying so hard not to. And every once in a while, one would snicker, but that was the only, that conversation was over, and no other conversations were started then. But he made it clear if I was his daughter, he would take me across my lap and spank me. And I told him exactly what would have happened had I been his daughter. I wouldn't have been down there. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. I love that part of the story, too, so thanks for bringing that out. Tammy, and thank you for sharing that again, yeah, Ms. Williams. that's why I say I knew I would, I had missed some parts because it's been a while since we've done the pilgrimage, but uh, things like that you don't forget. You just, if you're telling it in the moment, you might uh, not think about it, but that is what happened. Well, you I... wanted a conversation. <laughs> you gave him a conversation. I gave him what he wanted. That's right. Well, I'm just so grateful again for you being with us as well. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me is just how, um, and you mentioned this a little bit with Keith, uh, people who said, hey, we're doing fine or kind of questioned the methods Don't of, rock pro- the of boat. protest. Don't rock the boat. Yeah. <laughs> and Don't rock the boat. We're doing just fine. I think about what's going on right now and the protests that are happening. And uh, there is a lot of concern about methods of protest that are inappropriate. And you faced people who were concerns who were concerned that protesting was inappropriate during your time. So Absolutely. what would you say to protesters now who need some encouragement and who are being told the same thing, don't rock the boat or that, you know, don't protest? I uh, would love to just hear a word of encouragement to people who are uh, protesting right now. Well, when they first, uh, the the Saturday morning downtown at the uh, arts building, where the mirror that's on the wall of the building down there beside the arts room, when they opened it that Saturday morning, and we had a student on the forum from North Carolina Century. It was uh Vivian McCoy, Mickey Michelle, Bill Bell, and I were on the forum, but we also had a student. And that was the question that he, one of the questions he asked in the 
only encouragement I gave them was if the time comes and you know it's right. Basically, I was I was uh, saying when you get old enough, make sure you register so so when the time comes and it, you feel that it's right in your heart that it's right. I would be thrilled to death to see you in the street protesting as long as for something good. Uh, these these protesters, I, I am still proud of the young protesters who did it and did it in a nice way without the violence and stuff. However, one of the things that they, they're looking at now is some of the police officers are fanning the violence with them. They're just look like eager to to pull the pistol out on them or use the knee or whatever it is. And uh, I'm just thinking if anybody is teaching them sensitivity, because I rode with the police for 13 years. I never saw anything like this at all about how they were acting and always pulling out this, that, or the other. So the violence... Part of the violence comes from the fact that they've watched black men shot, choked with this, choked with that, or so forth and so on. And nobody, and even had pictures of it and withheld the pictures and nothing happened. So they are just, they, they, I think they're just sizzling hot about it. And this they felt. Somebody had to do something about it when you see it on TV and you know it's wrong. But the fact that they are out there in the street protesting, the only thing I'm saying, I know some of them are not old enough to vote, but for every one of them who can vote, go to the poll as religiously as they did the streets and get rid of some of these people that need to be gone. Thank you. So I am still proud of the young folk who did it and did it the right way. I really am. Now, the violence, I do not like. But the violence can be fanned by top people. And uh, <laughs> I don't have to say anything. I don't have to go any higher than that. Because all of us watch TV. What comes to mind for me is as Ms. Williams reflects with us um, as it relates to the contemporary moment is the churches uh, where the church sat in terms of her constitution and training when it came to, you know, being able to be courageous to step in the way of, of, of the violence. Um, as you said, it didn't seem like there was uh, as much direct, direct violence, violence upon your body physically when you took that seat and said, serve me. Um, but I know we mentioned uh, at the start of the broadcast, your um, faithful commitment to the body of Christ and to a particular church. But can you speak to, again, the inspiration, the source of your strength, if it lied there and how that may be offered to our, our listeners today? And knowing that not all of our listeners necessarily claim Christianity as their uh, explicit faith commitment, but we would be remiss in this show, given that our vision and imagination is, comes from the story of the Samaritan. The uh, Our church, the St. Joseph Church, was where we did get our, our assignment when we started the picketing in 60. That's where we went to get our assignments to go out. You go there and they will tell you, you're going to be at such and such and such a place. I did most of mine at Kroger, and Kroger at that time was in Forest Hill where Compare is now. It was Kroger's, and then uh, Eckers. Drug store was, I think, next door to, next door to this is a beauty parlor, I mean, a beauty store or something like that. But right down that far as here, what is now compare, that was Kroger's. I did most of mine there. 
for the simple reason I live right across the railroad track from there. It's not that far from Umstead Street where I was living. So they would kind of try to put you near or in your neighborhood. And almost all of my picketing that I did was was there. But uh, you start out, you get your, you go to St. Joseph and get your assignment. And then you would go from there. But uh, there's another thing that I'm glad that you brought that up. If you go downtown and look at that civil rights mirror, at the very bottom you see a lot of hands locked together. Nobody's just hands. Well, you know those hands belong to live people. A lot of them are dead now, but they're behind the, behind the, uh, we were out in the street where people saw us. But behind the scene, there were so many community. The community was so involved. And there was this lady. We called her Babe, I think, something. Her name was Margaret something, but we called her Babe. They were working in factories. And what they would do, they would silently go to work, do their job, then go home and cook. Some would bake cookies. Some would make sandwiches. Some would make punch. They would take it to the station where we were coming to to get our assignment so that nobody would have to go on the picket line hungry. So those hands show you that that was the backing of the community people that you didn't see. And they weren't out there in the street bragging about that either. But they made sure that no child, because a lot of students left school and came straight there to the picket line to get ready to go out on the picket line. They would have sandwiches and cookies and so forth and so on. They would have something. They never bragged about it, but we knew who they were. And then the next day they would quietly go to that job and still didn't brag about it. But they were the backbone. It's always a backbone. There was just a lot of community help then at that time. And I'm talking about parents. And, of course, uh, I mentioned St. Joseph because that's where the you went and got your assignment. But the churches were also involved uh, in these protests and things of that sort. You had the ministers were involved in it. Because our pastor at that time was Reverend Melvin Chester Swan. The mayor was Mayor Wentzville Barrick, who died last summer, I believe, 100 years old. He was 100. I think he had his birthday, and then he died right after then. And when we would go down there to get our assignments, or if there was something, some message that Reverend Swan and uh, the mayor wanted to tell us, they would be standing at the podium shoulder to shoulder, and Mayor Grobert would come across that railroad track and come down to St. Joseph. It was like no big deal to him. We got a job to do. Now, when he went back across the railroad track, I think he caught there was backlash at him. But he didn't let that keep him from coming to St. Joseph back. And he and, he and Reverend Swan worked, as we said, they worked that thing together. And it was Reverend Douglas Moore, uh, a, a preacher who led the protest, right, Miss Williams, who kind of gathered you all. Yeah, together. he did. Uh, he, Reverend Douglas Moore, and he was the pastor at Asbury Temple Methodist Church. Now, uh, that building is still there, but I think that church moved to. I believe that's the big church on the corner of Austin Avenue, but I'm not sure about that. But Reverend Moore, yeah, he led it. But David Stitz was the head of that organization that put that together. Ms. Williams, mm -hmm. um, did you think that at this point in your life that you would still see some of the same issues being fought for? No, and every time some of the people who were out there with us, when I meet them, 
they stop and say, I thought we took care of this years ago. We're all surprised. We are really all surprised. And uh, every time I run into some, they say, can you, that's what we ask now, I say, can you believe it? Can you believe now? And it looks like it's getting worse. And it's, it's, it's getting worse. And as I said, see, the main thing has to do with leadership. And if the leaders at the top is fanning this flame, it can't get any better. No, I never in my life, never. So we thought then we were taking care of this and we've got this settled. But it's a new breed of people on each side. And yes, uh, on on as far as these young black people, they're getting tired of seeing folks. Even not long ago, somebody they found somebody hanging. I know Ida Wells would turn over in her grave if she knew that, as hard as she fought to stop the lynching. Yes, ma'am. Any closing questions for you, Keith? Well, once again, um, you know, words escape me and, and uh, I just um, do find it incredible that we're back at this place in a very, very, um, you know, tragic, tragic way. But as we are uh, encouraged uh, in this podcast to, to continue to insert or assert the question, Miss um, Williams, we'd like to ask you the question. Uh, as it relates to how do we, um, or what does it look like for you to love your neighbor, uh, in a time, um, once again, where we feel like all the efforts that you all have made and did make and the sacrifices and the, the struggle, um, what does it look like for you today, um, to model well, I- us? I'm going to still hang on to hope. Mm -hmm. That is what it looks like for me. The evils that people are doing and probably will still be doing won't last forever, I think. I'm going to just tell you one of the things when I look at the news, and I always look at Lawrence O'Donnell at 10 o'clock on uh, weeknights, I don't know if any of y'all ever watch him or not. He comes on on MSNBC 10 o'clock at night. But he usually brings on uh, a lot of people who really comes out and say what is happening and so forth and so on. And then we watch the news. And then you see officers, uh, elected officials, from the top down, acting the way they act, I just flipped to the 37th Psalm, written not thyself because of evildoers, for they will be cut down soon like the grass, or something mm. like that. That's mm. not the exact mm. words, but the 37th Psalm. And I just hang on to that. And uh, I believe that there is hope. But some of these elected officials are going to have to go. They are going to have to go. Well, Ms. Williams, we want to thank you. Um, as always, you, you always inspire us and you always give us hope. And you are welcome. You are quite welcome. And I, Reynolds, was you going to offer uh, a closing response as well? I think I would like to take up that 37th Psalm as a, a parting. A part. Well, Miss Williams, I, 
you have been such an inspiration and you continue to be. And may, may the Lord continue to bless you and favor you with long life and good health and strength. Uh, you, you offered up the 37th Psalm. So I'd like to read it or a portion of it because it is, um, one of the lengthy Psalms, uh, as I review it here, it's, it's 40 yeah, verses. Yeah. It's 40 verses, but I'll read just the, uh, the first seven or, uh, possibly eight. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Last verse. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. Thank you. That was, yeah, and I think that's all fitting in proper. If you can just remember that uh, when Reverend Philip, our cousin senior, who got elected bishop and left St. Joseph. But that was the one thing that ever so often he would remind us of when things were not going good, the 37th Psalm. Yep. And I think I, and I never forgot. Well, thank you again, Ms. Williams, for your time and your words of wisdom. The Who Is My Neighbor podcast is a production of Durham Cares, a nonprofit that mobilizes Durham residents to love their neighbors. Learn more at www.durhamcares.org. Be blessed.